Welcome to episode seven of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's Q&A episode, we answer a variety of questions about things like CBD supplements, the concept of junk volume, several questions related to muscle growth and hypertrophy, and finally, Greg answers a question about how he managed to build a following in the fitness industry. If you want some of your questions answered on a future episode, check out the links in the description and send your questions our way. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. I'm here with temporary co-host Greg Knuckles. And, you know, we expect it not to, not to feed a fed horse. Um, Greg, have you heard that expression? <laughs> it, it, it took a second to sink in, but yeah, that's... Uh... That's one I'm familiar with. Yeah, so that that's the new way to say beat a dead horse. Now, you don't want to be that grim, so you say to feed a fed horse. It sure would have been nice if you uh if you gave us a trigger warning before using the original yeah, one. Yeah, before un- unleashing that verbal assault. But <laughs> we'll we'll edit that out, but you know, I don't want to feed a fed horse here, but we knew that even though the fitness podcast format is intellectual property of the Stronger by Science publishing empire uh, kind of fits under the corporate umbrella we've established. We, we knew that people were going to try to steal that. I mean, that was expected. I thought it would take at least 10 episodes before we started really influencing federal policy uh, in the U.S. government. But <laughs> much to my surprise, if, you know, the loyal listeners will know maybe a week or so ago as of the recording date here. We released uh, an episode with Rick Collins. We talked a little bit about how it sure would be great if the government clarified some positions on CBD oil as a supplement. And wouldn't you know it, uh, like three days after we said that, the FDA comes crawling and saying, oh, we're going to go ahead and clarify now. I mean, they know that we as American taxpayers pay their salary. Exactly. And so when we demanded answers, they gave answers. That's that's yeah. how a, response, a responsive government in a liberal democracy works. You're right. I mean, this is an example of the government getting it right. They listened to the podcast and they said, yeah, we ought to clarify. They had a meeting and then the press release comes out. But the reason I bring it up, so we're going to keep doing Q&A episodes every other week, but every fourth week, I think we're going to start doing federal policy episodes. <laughs> if there are any federal policies or laws that you'd like uh, some clarification on, or you'd like updated or revised, um, go ahead and send us which federal policies you'd like us to get working on. Because the CBD one, that was quick, three or four days, and, and we've really made some change. Yeah. And I mean, if if we're being honest and forthright here... We probably don't yet have quite enough pull to say, you know, do a constitutional amendment maybe more than once per year. (laughs) So if there's anything like inherent to the basic structure of governance in the country, um, make sure that make sure that that's something that you're really serious about before sending that in. But like basic federal policy, that's. That's no big deal. We yeah. Got, we got you there. So again, that'll be every fourth week from now on. But the normal question and answers, we're going to keep doing those as well. Now, this week, we did get a question that actually was about CBD. Username E10E10E10E10 said, seriously, CBD has to be bogus. What is your opinion on the topic? And uh, CBD is tough. So if you listen to the the episode with Rick Collins, or if you read the Stronger by Science uh, article, one of the cool things about CBD supplements 
is that the CBD is not supposed to be a supplement. So that's like a not relevant to its uses, but it is a fun fact that like that's going to be a very active thing to keep an eye on is how the government's going to deal with making those products available and overseeing quality. Now, CBD has actually obtained FDA approval as a drug, but only for seizure conditions. So there there are a couple forms of epilepsy for which CBD has been approved as a pharmaceutical drug. Now, there are a lot of anecdotes out there about, you know, CBD helps with recovery or anxiety or stress or whatever the case may be. And a lot of those anecdotes are just that. They're anecdotes. There's there's not a tremendous amount of evidence to really go with uh, in terms of clinical research. Another thing to keep in mind about CBD supplements is quality control. Um, in, until a supplement really gains traction, it's hard to know whether or not you can really trust that you're getting a, a pure, potent, unadulterated product that, that has exactly what's labeled and doesn't have what's not labeled. Now, there are, uh, according to examine.com right now, there are about 190 trials ongoing with CBD. Uh, That's wild. So CBD is an active area of research. I, I, you know, just because it's anecdotal, I'm not one to just kind of dismiss it. I mean, anecdotal evidence is still evidence. You just have to interpret it as such, you mm-hmm. know. So what do we know from the evidence? Uh, the evidence would suggest that for some particular seizure disorders, there's some some application, but everything beyond that at this point is, is pretty much anecdotal. And the one thing I would say is I would be very... Didn't... Um, so at, at the Fitness Summit this year, in Mike T. Nelson's presentation, didn't, didn't he present some like reasonably strong evidence that it may it may also be like a decent prophylactic for concussions he he did mention that have you looked into any of the studies on concussion no i mean i i just generally trust mike (laughs) yeah i i I didn't really follow up on it i i when it comes to the on label approved application of of seizures oh yeah yeah for sure um, that is where most of the rigorous evidence is. I, I I would definitely believe that there is preliminary evidence available pertaining to brain injury. There are some things looking at anxiety, pain, things of that nature. But when it comes to the the more robust findings that you can can really take at face value, I I think right now the the limited utility that you see CBD being approved for pretty much solely pertains to the seizure stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, there's 190 studies ongoing. I would imagine at least a few of them are on other outcomes. So there, there's certainly preliminary evidence in other areas that may or may not pan out. You know, there, there are some, some human studies that have looked at things like anxiety and pain, but I'm, I'm more uh, hesitant to, to make any strong conclusions, especially when it comes to the fact that the the oversight of quality control with these supplements, I really don't even know where to begin. And that that's something to keep in mind is that there are kind of maximum thresholds for, for THC content at which you would say it is a, you know, a legal CBD product. How well do certain manufacturers adhere to that? It's hard to say. At what doses can you potentially fail a drug test? I, I frankly do not know. 
So I, I get pretty hesitant to recommend it, but it is an area that I'm I'm interested in. Yeah, and, and one of the hangups as well is like, if there's a supplement with, say, preliminary evidence, maybe like a fair amount of decent anecdotes, and it seems like it has a good safety profile and it's cheap, then that's easier to give like a light recommendation on and say like, eh, you know, maybe it's worth a shot. But the thing with CBD is like the the efficacious dose is reasonably high and reasonably expensive. So it seems like uh, un- unless you make really, really good money, it seems like a reasonably large gamble just because if you're going to take enough for it to theoretically possibly do something, you know, you're, you're probably spending a couple bucks a day on it, um, which you know, compared to most supplements you would take if you buy wholesale, you may be spending like between five and 25 cents a day. So, you know, it it would be a lot easier to recommend to say like, you know, we're not really sure about any of this stuff, but if you want to try it, try it if it was cheaper. But, you know, that's a that's a that's a non-negligible financial cost for something that possibly does nothing or possibly, like you said, could have some negative effects if there are issues with um, like purity and manufacturing or just side effects we don't know about yet. Yeah. And when the FDA sent out their press release, they didn't mention us by name, but it was for us. You can read between the lines. But they also mentioned that, that they were a little bit annoyed that CBD has become this widespread supplement that's not actually a supplement. Because they're like, we really haven't looked into a lot of these other, you know, what are the potential drug interactions? What are the maximum safe doses? Things of that nature. They, The FDA put out a statement saying, we're really not certain about those things. And until we are, we'd prefer that people not just kind of haphazardly start <laughs> manufacturing and, and distributing these products. On to a slightly more conventional question that we're more used to dealing with. Quadzilla 83 Ask the question, does volume or intensity drive strength gains? Is it one more than the other or a combination of the two? Yeah, so that's a good question. And in my opinion, it uh, it depends pretty heavily on what time scale you're dealing with. So in the reasonably short term, it's much more intensity than volume. Um there it it's not even worth citing specific studies to back up that point like there's there's a pretty clear dose response curve in terms of like higher intensity training to a point um tends to lead to larger strength gains during the the time scales that are typically studied in research so you know between like maybe a month and a half and 5 months like that that's about as long as studies tend to go um, so in the short term, like absolutely intensity, um, over, so over the short term, there is, uh, meta-analytic evidence and I'm, I'm blanking on the, on the name of the lead author of the meta-analysis. Um, but there was a meta that came out last year looking at the effects of volume on strength gains. Um, so looking at, like one to five sets per week versus five to nine sets per week versus 10 plus sets per week. And basically like the higher volumes did lead to larger strength gains than the lower volumes, but the effect size was pretty small. Um, 
it was like a Cohen's D of 0.2, which is like right at the cutoff between a trivial and small effect. Um, and like the percentage chain or like the percentage difference was, was reasonably small as well. So over the short term, there's, there's pretty good evidence that you do make larger strength gains with more volume, but the effect is a lot smaller than what we see for intensity. And it also kind of seems like a poor bang for your buck type investment where, you know, maybe you're doing three times as much training for like 10% larger strength gains. Um, However, I think there's also a pretty strong theoretical case to be made that volume is very important for strength gains in the long term. So again, drawback of a lot of research is is they're looking at the effects of these variables over reasonably short time scales. So, you know, weeks to months. Um, and so you're not really looking at, you know, how, how does this affect me over like a 10-year training career? And one of the things we do know about volume is that it's very important for hypertrophy. And during the short term, especially on like beginner to intermediate lifters, most of the strength gains you get is going to come from like neural adaptations, improving technique, etc. Uh, hypertrophy does also contribute to strength gains, but its relative contribution is considerably smaller than those other factors. Um, but over the long term, it should play a progressively larger role as you kind of tap out some of those other avenues for strength gains. So there's not, you, you know, there aren't like 20 year long training studies out there to really hang your hat on and say, we know for sure that volume is a major driver of strength gains in the long term. But I feel like that's uh, a, a pretty strong theoretical case that yeah, in the short term, intensity is is the most important training variable for strength gains. Um, but over the longer term, like volume plays a progressively larger role. If you solely do high intensity, low volume stuff, you'll make strength gains pretty quickly. But you probably won't develop enough muscle mass to keep making solid progress over the span of years and years and years. Uh, to keep making progress, you probably need to put more muscle on your frame, and that's going to come more down to volume. So as an extension of that, for someone who competes in powerlifting, could you make the argument then that theoretically, you know, the, the time that they're spending away from competition, it might make more sense to emphasize volume and then really ratchet up the intensity in the weeks or months leading into competition? Oh, for sure. I mean... So one of the things you tend to notice is, so like not in all cases at all times, but for the most part, the most successful lifters in each weight class tend to be among the shortest lifters in those weight classes. Um, they're the people who have been able to pack more muscle onto a smaller frame. Um, and also like they're just more jacked than the average competitor in that weight class. Yeah, it's like that that kind of cliche saying, right? In powerlifting, there's height classes, not weight classes. Yeah, like yeah. If you're too tall, you got to fill out into a bigger class. Yeah, like occasionally there will be someone who comes along like John Hack, who's like 5'10", or in metric, what would that be, like 178 centimeters, give or take, um, competing in the 83 kilo class, which like, that's pretty tall for an 83 kilo lifter, but I mean, John Hack is just a god. He's so, doing fine. Yeah, yeah. So like he, so like he, <laughs> he'll he, be all right. So like he makes it work, but like every other good, like world class lifter in that weight class is much shorter than like the typical 83. 
Um, so, so yeah, like there are certainly exceptions, but yeah, for the most part, the, the common expression weight classes or height classes in disguise tends to hold. Um, so yeah, like I think that, um, I, I do think a lot of lifters, uh, stunt their development, not necessarily like in the long term, because I think eventually most people tend to wake up to this, but in the short term, like, you know, you do a beginner program, you make some gains, training is good, and then you you start hitting a wall, you start plateauing, and you realize, like, ooh, if I cut volume a little bit and really ratchet up my intensity, now my numbers start moving again. And that feels good. Um, and I think people experience that and then kind of get married to that style of training for a little too long. And then, you know, a few months to maybe a year later, they hit a much, much harder plateau where, you know, they're kind of lifting about as much as their current level of muscularity can support. Um, and I, I think at that point, a lot of people do wisen up and realize like, oh, I need to pack more mass on my frame. Um, but yes, that's, that's something that um, I would say most like beginner to intermediate level powerlifters should be focused on for at least like the first four, five, six years of your training career. Once you're, once you've like filled out a class and you're pretty confident you're not going to be able to fill out the next one, yeah, then maybe you want to make more of your training more specific for more of the year. Um, but until you get to that point and you find like that natural highest weight class for you, um, I, I think you should probably be spending a, a pretty good portion of your year on uh, just trying to get jacked. And that may make you a little bit less competitive in the short term, but I think it's going to pay off for you in the long run. Yeah, I, I like the way you phrase that. Um, I'm paraphrasing because my memory's not great. But you mentioned people get to a point where they're lifting about as much as their amount of muscle mass can support. And lately, there's been this kind of revived debate of whether or not hypertrophy really does make meaningful contributions to strength. And in the short term, you know, looking at laboratory research over 8, 12, 16 weeks, you, you can probably find instances where there's a very muddied correlation there. But to me, that's where the it really jumps out at you is like, you start to see where people it's like, well, based, you're just not going to really get stronger until you put on some muscle you know what i mean and those are not the people that we study yeah so uh, a few times i've asked a very pointed question to people that um i wouldn't necessarily say make that claim but at least put forth that argument that you know maybe building muscle isn't all that important for gaining strength uh and i'll say to them like look the first powerlifting meet i did i competed at 165 but i weighed in at 152 you know, I was a very, very easy water cut away from being a 148. Um, you know, since then, I've competed at 220. I've competed at 242. Totaled close to 1900. Um, my gym totals pretty close to 2000. Like that, and that's the number that I'm like really, really trying to hit one day. Um, dog, if I could cut back to 148 and total 2K or even 1900 or even 1800, <laughs> I would be comfortably the greatest powerlifter the world has ever seen uh in terms of you know like wilkes points ipf score or whatever like that would be a ridiculously dominant performance and so i'll say to them like look if you're really that confident that hypertrophy is not contributing to strength gains 
fucking tell me. I'll cut to 148 and take the world by storm. But, like, how how much do you actually have, like, the courage of your convictions here? Like, do you, do you really think I'd be able to get back down to that weight class without sacrificing any strength? And then that's where the conversation kind of goes dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we've got a related question about volume. This one is uh, B to the fifth. The question is, do you think that junk volume is real or is all volume productive? That's a good, that's a good question. And I think that there's, um, I think that there are a couple different ways to answer this. So I think the practical answer is that junk volume is real. I think a slightly less practical answer is that all volume is going to do something. The question is more like, is the additive effect of additional volume going to be noticeable or is it going to potentially be counterproductive? Um, so, you know, you impose a stimulus on your body. It's going to do something, um, you know, on like the microscopic cellular level. Like at least something is going to be different from doing that eighth set instead of stopping at the seventh. It may not be particularly large or it may be like, a small effect that's negative because maybe you've like exceeded now your ability to recover from that session uh, or recover as adequately. But I think the the term junk volume, at least to me, sounds like it has the implication of like this extra volume isn't doing anything. And I think on just a pure physiological level, it's doing something. It's just a question of whether it's enough to really notice or whether it would be beneficial or potentially detrimental. And so I think on a practical level, like, yeah, like junk volume's a thing. Um, if you're doing, you know, if you're doing like thir 13 sets in a workout instead of 12, like did that 13th set for a given muscle group do enough to really make much of a difference? Eh, probably not. Uh, or like, let's say theoretically you do like, four or five really hard sets for an exercise and then you you know cut the cut the load by 50 percent and then do a triple to end with technically that's more volume but like that the last set's going to be so fucking easy it's not going to do anything noticeable um so yeah I, I like i think practically junk volume is a thing but i i think that um you should you should recognize everything is doing something. It's just more of a question of whether the effects are going to be noticeable or not. Wasn't it you who mentioned the concept of like hard sets as a means of of quantifying volume? Or am I getting mixed up? Um, so I got the idea from Nathan Jones. Um, he wrote uh, an article for for at the time string theory back in like 2014, I think, a long time ago. Um, and yeah, so he he is who I got that idea from. And then I think I'm probably the person who's popularized it the most, but credit where it's due. That was that was his concept that I ripped from him. Shout out to Nathan. Shout out to Nathan. So yeah, I, I think that's kind of a... That conceptually jives really well with your explanation there of like, it's not that the other volume doesn't count but like if you're really cutting to the chase and talking about like wh wh what volume is making really substantial meaningful contributions 
Like that's a, a nice way to operationalize it, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, next question we have from Jesse. Uh, if we say that metabolite accumulation may play a causative role in hypertrophy, shouldn't that mean that supplements designed to enhance the pump actually increase hypertrophy? So this is a good question. Um, and I might be... So just to start with, what would you uh, analogically compare the feeling of the pump to? <laughs> I, I would just leave that to Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he, he I, I feel like he did such a great job with that. There's no, no need to replicate. You sure. Know? Um. I just wanted a sound clip that I could use against you at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm not taking that bait. <laughs> um, everyone listening to this clearly knows what we're talking about. If you don't, it, it's out there. So I always view this question through the lens of nitric oxide boosters because that's uh, what I've done a lot of research on myself. Um you know, th- there is the thought process that metabolite accumulation and cellular swelling uh, b- both do contribute as mechanisms that are, are conducive to muscle hypertrophy. So the idea would be, well, if, if we are essentially engorging the muscle with additional blood by increasing the hyperemic or blood flow response to exercise, um, theoretically, shouldn't that help in terms of promoting hypertrophy? And what I would say looking at the nitric oxide literature is it's certainly possible. Um, there are rodent studies in which uh, they've looked at it kind of both directions. They've used very potent methods to completely blunt endogenous nitric oxide production. And uh, in those studies, it's essentially blunted hypertrophy in the muscular adaptations to, to overload. On the flip side, they've given really potent nitric oxide donors, more potent than you would get in like a over-the-counter supplement. And in those studies, they've actually seen the hypertrophic response to training increased. And don't they also use models of like venous ablation where they just completely obstruct blood flow out of a muscle so that you get like crazy metabolite accumulation 24-7 and see pretty crazy growth from that as well? I haven't looked at that literature. Um, the scope of what I was looking at was purely NO donor donors and I NO gotcha. blockade. I was asking a question, but yes, that yeah. that research is out there. Okay. Um, <laughs> pretty frequently, I'll come across studies where I'm like, "God, these poor these poor mice." Yeah. Um, so, some of the research methods are just just gnarly, and when I come across something like that, that one is a very interesting experimental model. And two is just like very cruel. It sticks in my head for both of those reasons. Yeah. the I mean, like there's like the stress test where they basically almost drown mice, mm-hmm. you know, or rats and just say, well, I'm sure they're stressed out because they're essentially drowning and they, they measure their responses to that, uh, to that stimulus. My, my example of that is there's a lot of, a lot of the early research on leptin and leptin receptors. What they would do is... It's kind of like a horror movie, but they would fuse two rodents together so that they shared bloodstreams mm-hmm. and so that they would have linked circulatory systems. So these these poor little guys would, would live connected to each other, sharing circulation, 
And depending on what they would do with, you know, different ablations of certain parts of the hypothalamus, it'd be like one side of the the mouse pair would become obese and the other would starve to death due to the satiety signals. Oh, shit. Like it would stop eating. Oh, shit. Like it it was, you would see some really wild stuff Mm -hmm. or, or. In some cases, like you would see rodents that became so, um, their appetite was increased so much, they would actually cause accidental death from eating so much that they choked, like ravenous feeding. Jesus. So there's some, yeah, if, there was a lot of weird stuff that happened to a lot of mice over the last couple hundred years. Uh, every now and then you run into it in the literature and you're like, God, that's, that's rough. Yeah. The, the people who, uh, who are reincarnated as, as lab rodents clearly had karma working against them. Like they, they did some bad stuff. Yeah. If you're going to be a rodent, like I'd much rather get scooped up by an owl. Yeah. For that, sure. That'd be a lot, a lot easier. Um, anyway, I think we were talking about nitric oxide, right? We were. <laughs> um, so now the question is, theoretically, that could be the case. Um, it, it could be that, some of these supplements that enhance the pump, which is essentially nitric oxide uh, supplements in most cases, um, it, it's possible that they could be promoting hypertrophy. I'm only aware of one, maybe two studies that actually looked at long-term uh, strength and hypertrophy uh, adaptations over time. The, the one that comes to mind is by uh, Willoughby's group, where, where they use the uh, the citrulline combined with glutathione but it was a very low citrulline dose Mm -hmm. Um, and what you saw was that none of the groups really had meaningful muscle growth uh, if if i recall that study right Um, but yeah the the, the general takeaway from that study was uh, there wasn't a lot of muscle growth going on uh, in general in response to the program now there there are some theoretical ways that nitric oxide could uh, contribute to hypertrophy so um, it has been shown to have some role in satellite cell proliferation it could be uh, you know it, it in the short term these supplements do seem to enhance resistance training performance to some degree for a big huge uh, write-up on all that evidence we, we've got an article on the site uh, strongerbyscience.com slash nitric oxide um, one of the things you made me aware of about nitric oxide, which I had absolutely no idea about, uh, cause I was thinking of it primarily as, as a vasodilator, um, is that it can also cause changes in gene expression via like nitrosylating DNA, which is like an epigenetic modification, which like for something as simple as nit- nitric oxide, I had no idea it could do that. Yeah. Um, so, th- so like, th- there could be effects that we just don't know about yet. Oh, yeah. I believe, man, this is me digging deep from, like, late night reading, but I, I believe it's estimated that there are over 3,000 potential protein targets for nitrosylation and similar covalent modifications from nitric oxide and nitric oxide-related metabolites. So... Yeah, there, there's probably at least a couple or a few thousand proteins that nitric oxide can covalently mess with and, and cause God knows what effects. Um, I mean, if, if it were really pronounced, we'd probably know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah like sure. If it yeah. was like a huge effect. But uh, but yeah, so I don't mean to be like, you know, what's lurking in your nitric oxide, <laughs> you know, like 
Yeah, it's it's fine. <laughs> but but yeah, nitrosylation is it, 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 it turns out like the mutant X gene is just like people who hyperexpress nitric oxide synthase. <laughs> exactly. That fucks up all of their DNA and now they can shoot fire out of their fingertips or something. Exactly. Um now I, I am glad you brought up nitrosylation though, because the more that I look at nitric oxide supplements and their effects when it pertains to strength performance i am increasingly convinced that blood flow actually has not much to do with it if anything at all i think uh when you look more closely at uh what nitric oxide seems to be doing within the muscle it can nitrosylate the ryanodine receptor and so that's really big when it comes to calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So it, it's possible that nitric oxide via nitrosylation might be enhancing calcium release, particularly in fatiguing situations. And it also seems that nitric oxide enhances the sensitivity of myofibrils to the release of calcium. So uh, when it comes to nitric oxide and you say, what, what, what does it really do for the lifter? I think you could make the argument that via increased blood flow and metabolite accumulation, maybe it enhances hypertrophy. I think you could make arguably a stronger case that due to acute performance enhancement, maybe that helps you achieve higher training quality over time. And that could also be a contributing factor. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the big caveat is we don't have long-term research really seeing that pan out. So for now, it is, you know, highly theoretical in nature. I think there could be some enhancement of hypertrophy from these supplements that, that enhance nitric oxide, but I, I'm not sure really how much of that would have to do with the metabolite accumulation or cell swelling. Yeah. So two, two other things I would add on that is one, the, the question, like the actual text of the question asks, if we say that metabol metabolite accumulation may play a causative role in hypertrophy, then blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think one of the, the things we need to clarify as well is the assumption here is that metabolite accumulation plays a causative role in hypertrophy. Right. Which also we don't know that to be true. And there's some evidence suggesting that it is in fact not true. Um, so... The reason that that became like an idea that that folks latched onto is in some experimental models, what you see is the groups that experience the most or the, the largest metabolite accumulation also experience the most hypertrophy. But we don't know that the metabolite accumulation is actually a causative factor. So another thing that metabolite accumulation does um is it can lower recruitment thresholds and actually increase motor unit recruitment. And so if we assume that uh, mechanical tension or like recruiting and adequately fatiguing um, like the, the pool of muscle fibers, if we assume that that is the primary driver of hypertrophy, then metabolite accumulation isn't necessarily playing a causative role. It's playing a secondary role in that it helps with motor unit recruitment. Um, so that, that could be more of its play. And so what we know about motor unit recruitment is that if you take a set to failure or probably pretty close to failure, you're going to be accomplishing essentially full recruitment. Another thing that we know um, is that like there's quite a bit of research now looking at 
like heavier training versus like considerably lighter training um, and the longitudinal effects on hypertrophy. The assumption here being that lighter training would cause more metabolite accumulation. So talking about, you know, doing sets of 30, 40 reps at 30% of your max versus doing, you know, sets of eight to 10. Um, a lot of research now looking at that and finding pretty similar hypertrophy between those those different loading ranges, um, which calls into, into question like the independent causative role of metabolite accumulation in hypertrophy. Um, but one... One other thing I would throw out there for vasodilators, so um, what, what Trex was talking about was would be mostly things like nitrate supplementation or like citrulline supplementation, um, and, and this may have been one of the things you had in mind with rodent research, but something that is also a, a pretty potent vasodilator that humans like can't actually get their hands on and maybe independently hypertrophic in normal doses is sildenafil, or in other words, Viagra. Um, there's been at least one study, and I think there may have been two studies, looking at Viagra supplementation in mice using like a human equivalent dose that would be similar to a dose of Viagra that a person would actually take. Um, finding that it, that it actually increased hypertrophy pretty substantially. Um, so I think... Man, I think that would be a super interesting human study because I mean Viagra has a has a solid safety profile. Other than the fact that it's uh, prescribed as a drug, I can't see why people would be like super leery about studying that as as a dietary supplement. You know? Yeah, I know. Like whenever you submit manuscripts or submit IRVs, a lot of times they ask if you're doing any off label use of drugs. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming that's what that refers to. And I'm assuming that opens a whole can of worms. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's something that has been on the market for a long time and has a very solid safety profile. Hey, I, I'm I mean, there, man. I, I say go for it. Like cocaine, for example, uh, does have therapeutic uses. Like it's, it's sometimes used as a, um, like analgesic for nasal surgery, for example, but like, you might have a hard time getting an off-label use of cocaine uh, by an IRB, but something like Viagra, I, I could definitely see some, I could see a fair amount of schools having like a big problem with you studying that, but I'm sure that there are understanding IRBs out there that would sign off on it. Uh, yeah, I, I could see that, especially if you're housed in a not exercise science program, to mm -hmm. be honest, like if you're operating out of a, more medically oriented program, I, I would imagine you have a much higher probability of getting approved for that. You know, mm -hmm. you, you get some MDs on board and do everything on the up and up. I just, I just think that would be cool. I, I'm with you. All right. Um, yeah, there were there were a couple jokes I was considering making, but I don't, I don't think we've quite earned that as a podcast yet. <laughs> 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 yeah, just let him go. Yeah, okay. Um, so moving on to the next question by Alex Grinnan. Um, I've read that having a lower body fat percentage is more conducive to building muscle slash strength. Is there truth to this or is the change in body function slash hormones negligible between high body fat and low body fat percentage? So basically, if you're trying to get jacked and strong, 
should you cut first? Is that going to kind of set the stage for more muscle growth, larger strength gains? Well, let's start out with um, kind of the hormone changes we see with different body fat levels. Um, It would be true to suggest that once you, you know, individuals with obesity tend to have lower testosterone and higher estrogen levels uh, compared to a normal weight uh, control group. So you you could make the theoretical, it, it would be true to suggest that if a obese person with a great deal of excess body fat uh, lost some body fat and obtained a leaner body composition, it, that hormone profile might look better. The estrogen might become reduced and the testosterone might bump up back into a, a higher kind of resting level. Now, the, the caveat is once you get too lean, then you're kind of screwed. You know, talk to any natural bodybuilder when they're when they're really lean, ready for a competition, like the the testosterone levels that you see in natural bodybuilders are, are honestly comical. Like the, the reference range, I forget the the units, but it's like 300 to 1000 or 300 to 1100 for for most young men you'll see values at like 100, 150. Like I, I've been under 150 before uh, when I still had a lot of weight to lose for a competition. And so is that the the prime spot to be in for muscle growth? Uh, absolutely not. Now, I also wouldn't speculate though that I, I would definitely say when you're in that position, super duper lean, yeah, you're not really in an ideal hormonal spot for muscle gain and and we don't see people rebound from that with a lot of muscle gain right out of the gate um i've done a couple studies on really lean bodybuilders and looking at their body composition changes in the first like four eight twelve weeks you almost always gain a huge proportion of fat in the initial weight regain period now on the other end of the coin i do find it hard to believe that if you were obese that you would struggle to put on lean mass due to the the magnitude of hormone uh variation we see up there i mean have you ever seen any research on that yeah so um two things i'll add so first off the i I think the the line of research um uh, influencing this question in the first place or really like the, the study that most people cite is uh, the study by Forbes back in the day where I I can't remember if it was like an overfeeding study or if he was like compiling results of like various overfeeding studies. Um, But the, the net effect was that when you overfeed lean people, um, something like two thirds of the weight gained is lean mass and only about a third is fat mass. And when you overfeed um, overweight and obese people, about two thirds of the weight gained is fat mass and only about a third is lean mass. So I think that's where the assumption underlying this question comes from. Like when you overfeed lean versus obese people, what ratio of lean to fat mass do you, do you see? Um, and one thing to note there, and and you were getting at this with your answer, is there's uh, there's a path dependency such that people who are lean and have always been lean um, 
are probably physiologically different and metabolically different than people who have previously been considerably overweight and are now lean. So you can't necessarily assume that the same principles will apply because if someone is lean and has always been lean, they're probably not getting those reductions in androgens, reductions in um, leptin and maybe thyroid hormones and various other things that, that come with getting lean. Whereas the person who used to be considerably overweight and has now lost a bunch of weight may have some of those issues going on. Um, in terms of in terms of like obese people or people with a lot of body fat having issues putting on muscle, a fair amount of that is is based on there have been I think like two or three acute muscle protein synthesis studies looking at lean versus obese people um, in response to protein feeding or resistance training, finding that the postprandial or the post-workout elevations in muscle protein synthesis, smaller in obese people than, than leaner people. Um, but there's a difference there between like people who have a fair amount of body fat but are also like very active and doing a lot of resistance training versus people who are obese because like they just don't exercise at all and are very sedentary. Um, so I, I believe uh, one of the things that, that you studied um, while you were at UNC was looking at muscle quality in lean versus obese people, both in like general population and also football players, finding that uh, muscle quality is assessed via like ultrasound echo intensity, if memory right. serves, yeah. was very, very different between lean and obese general population folks. But like muscle quality looked pretty good in pretty obese football players. Um, so, so that leads me to believe that there's definitely some confounders here where it's it's difficult to extrapolate from... Uh, people who have always been lean versus people who've always been overweight to folks who have been overweight and are now lean. And there's also issues extrapolating from overfeeding studies in the general population versus like an athletic population of, you know, maybe powerlifters or strongmen who are, you know, very active and are probably metabolically healthier than their body fat levels would suggest taken in isolation. And honestly, dog, like, I think just the existence of super heavyweights falsifies the uh, the assumption that if your body fat gets too high, you're going to have a hard time putting putting on muscle and gaining strength. Because right, yeah, you know, like the supers are stronger than the like 125, 120 kilo lifters. Like they just are. Their body comp is worse. They have a lot more body fat. They're also considerably stronger. So one would assume that they have continue to be able to put on more muscle uh than they would have been if if they were leaner probably yeah, yeah that, that's kind of what i was getting at is that there are cross-sectional studies showing like yeah obese versus lean controls the obese males have higher estrogen lower testosterone um but i i just can't Basically, I mean, what you're saying, like, if you want to find somebody with a lot of lean mass, find somebody who's like semi-athletic and 340 pounds. Like, that's where you're going to find the lean mass. Yeah. So I, I struggle to believe that it 
actually prevents you from being able to put on lean mass. Well, I mean, like, I have no idea what Ray Williams' hormonal profile looks like. Yeah. But, but like, I can tell you, dude doesn't have great body comp, but he obviously has a shitload of muscle. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> like, I, I think I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, so I, I, if your only goal in a vacuum was muscle gain, I don't see a scenario where you would have to where you would benefit from losing fat to achieve that goal. However, the reason I brought up the physique athlete stuff and the bodybuilding stuff is if you were to take that very literally and get super lean thinking you're setting yourself up for hypertrophy, you're probably going to, if you get lean enough, you'll, you'll be shooting yourself in the foot there. So yeah. you, you need to be high enough body fat to actually produce androgens at a meaningful level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, we got a question here from how do you how do you think you pronounce that name? Polychronus Panopolis. Polychronus. I've never heard that name before. I think he's Greek. Very cool. I like it. Okay, how possible is it that eccentric overload causes preferential hypertrophy of Titan, uh, meaning that people who only perform conventional training are only getting a percentage of the available gains? Uh, Sub question. Um, what kinds of studies would you use to test this? Uh, and, you know, what kind of difference do you think it would really amount to, uh, practically speaking? Okay, so there's there's several questions here. One, how possible is it that eccentric overload training causes preferential hypertrophy of Titan? I don't know. I honestly have no idea. Um, I've never seen that directly studied. Um, so I'll say, Sure. It's possible. Why not? Um, I think the the practical question here, though, is the second question. Um, Assuming that uh, eccentric overload training causes preferential hypertrophy of Titan, would that mean that people who only perform conventional training only get a percentage of available gains? And there, I think that... um, I don't think you're missing out on much, if anything, by not doing eccentric overload training. So um, one of the things we do know, or at least very, very strongly suspect, is that eccentric training causes more hypertrophy than concentric training. So if you only do eccentrics, you'll probably grow more than if you only did concentrics. Uh, there was there was a meta-analysis looking at that that was published maybe like 18 months, two years ago. Um, it didn't quite find a significant difference, but I think it was like a p-value of like 0.06 or something. So pretty close to significant. Most of the non-significant differences leaned in favor of, of more hypertrophy with eccentric only than concentric only training. So yeah, like you you very certainly do need to be doing or you quite certainly do need to be doing some sort of eccentric training to maximize hypertrophy. The question then is, do you need to do eccentric overload training? Or is just the eccentrics you get from doing, you know, normal conventional training sufficient? Um, And there haven't been a ton of studies looking at that, but everything out there that's been published so far tends to indicate that there's no additional benefit from doing eccentric overload training. So uh, the, the most common setup you would use for that is what's called accentuated eccentrics. So sometimes studies will just use weight releasers. So 
Just for the first rep, you go down with a heavier load. When the weight releasers hit the ground, they come off the bar. You stand up with a lighter load. And then you do the rest of the set with just that lighter load. There have also been, I believe, one or two studies using dynamometers with like different resistances set for the eccentric versus the concentric uh, part of the lift. Um, and I think there's been... Actually, I'm pretty sure there's been at least one study out of Norway or Sweden, one of those one of those Scandinavian countries, um, where they had a hydraulic setup such that for the eccentric, like the like hydraulics were pressing down on the bar harder, and then uh, once people hit full depth, like I'm pretty sure they were doing the squat. Once they hit full depth, like the hydraulics relaxed and let people stand up. Or it could have been the other way around where that like the hydraulics weren't pushing up on the bar for the eccentric, but then they kicked in and helped on the concentric, but like really cool hydraulic setup. So I just want to interject that yeah. whole region of the world. They do it right, man. I, I was at the University of Yavaskula and uh, they took Eric Helms and I on a little tour. Mm -hmm. Most of their strength equipment, including their dynamometers didn't have brand names. They were completely custom fabrications by engineers that came in. So That's like so cool. if they wanted to rig anything in the world to manipulate how they applied a force, they just did it. It was mm -hmm. wild, man. Yeah. So accentuated eccentrics have been studied using several different methods. And up to this point, you don't see additional hypertrophy from it. So um, if, if, eccentric overload is causing preferential hypertrophy of titan in terms of how that's actually affecting you know muscle cross-sectional area muscle thickness things we can actually measure it doesn't seem like the effect is large enough to to be measurable enough to matter um so then the next part of the question what study designs or tools would you use to test that i assume it would be um you know, you could take biopsies and look at like RNA expression for like the genes that would code for the Titan proteins. Or if there's like some some particular like region of the Titan protein that would show up really well in like a muscle homogenate, you could take biopsies homogenated and, and look at it that way. I'm not entirely sure what the best methods would, would be to test it. Um, maybe there's like a staining technique where you could, you know cut cross-section, stain it, look at it under an electron microscope. Uh, so I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure what the best answer to to that question would be, like what, what the best design or tools would, would be to study that. Um, but finally, the last part of the question is, if true, what kind of difference do you feel it would amount to? Based on the research we have to this point, I don't think it's enough difference to really worry about. Yeah. If, if there's a difference at all. Like, yeah. I, I'm skeptical that it's causing any additional hypertrophy whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, Titan is one of those things that um, I'm not exactly a dinosaur. You know, I, I got my physiology education between 2009 and 2019 in universities. And man, even at graduate level muscle physiology, the most you hear about Titan is like, fun fact, Titan also exists. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you're, yeah. you're not really getting a lot of education on that because it's very much the cutting edge of muscle physiology, um, trying to figure out exactly 
how it uh, responds to different types of exercise, how it might contribute to force production. This is kind of the new school stuff that we're still hammering out as we go. So in terms of uh, converting these these kind of brand new findings that suggest that Titan is a lot more important than we used to think, converting those into applicable, practical uh, strategies, I think we're, we're a ways off. Yeah, and, and as far as Titan goes, I think that if you're interested in Titan-based adaptations and how that would affect something in regards to lifting, I think your better bet would be to look at performance more so than hypertrophy. Um, so one of the things a lot of people know about Titan is like the protein itself is absolutely enormous. Um, I think it may actually be the single longest protein in the human body. I, I believe so. Um, so that's really cool. But in terms of the total protein content of a muscle fiber, it's a reasonably small percentage. Um, like the vast majority of protein in the um, myofibrils is just actin and myosin. Um, so like even if you did cause maybe a little additional titan accumulation, just because it's such a small percentage of the total protein content of muscle fibers, I don't think it would show up as measurable hypertrophy. Since it does affect like sarcomere structure and function to some degree though, like I said, I could... I could potentially see an argument for Titan-based adaptations to affect some aspects of performance. Um, so, like that may be a potential thing to look at in the future, but but I don't think that uh, I don't think it's going to be a major player in hypertrophy. Okay, uh, next question we have from Jason Barnes. Um, he's asking about refeeds. So the the crux of this question is. Um, you need at least two consecutive days of refeeding to have uh, an impact on your metabolism and hormone levels. So basically are refeeds or diet breaks beneficial in the long term because you know now you're you're either out of a deficit at maintenance or maybe in a surplus for a few days and it seems like the metabolic effects you get on the back end in terms of maybe increased metabolism are, are relatively small. Um, so, you know, should you have refeeds and diet breaks? Um, are they beneficial? Do, or is it more like two steps back for one step forward? Just in, in general, how would you approach refeeds and diet breaks? Yeah. Um, so when, when it comes to refeeds and diet breaks, one of the big questions is, how much do you need to overfeed and for how long? That That's really everybody's question about refeeds and diet breaks. Now, a single day of overfeeding, um, if you just go from a deficit to maintenance for a day, it's probably you're probably not going to elevate leptin for long enough to accomplish much of anything. That, that's really the name of the game if we're trying to do anything physiological with a refeed. Um you know, because you have to not only, it doesn't just only take time to get leptin up, but you want to keep it elevated long enough to have all of its numerous downstream effects. And all of those biochemical transactions, to use a metaphor, they all take time. So you need to have leptin elevated for some minimal amount of time to actually make a meaningful effect on some of the things we're hoping to influence. So 
things like sex hormones, uh, thyroid hormone, non-exercise activity, even resting metabolic rate, maybe to a small degree. Um, one day is probably not going to do it. Uh, my friend Bill Campbell down at USF, really good guy, does a lot of really cool studies out of USF. They did a study that they published as an abstract a couple years ago where they did a two-day refeed. And the two-day refeed was, again, just kind of, I think they're right about at maintenance for a couple days. And essentially what they found was two days appears to be the minimum where you can start to see some measurable benefit. Um, it wasn't huge uh, to, to kind of get to the to the root of this question. So the, the two-day refeed... Yeah, it'll accomplish some of those other things like glycogen replenishment in the short term, a little psychological break, um, but it, it's still a fairly minimal effect that when you're very, very late in a contest prep um, might be small but meaningful for the average weight loss client uh, or somebody who's just trying to kind of slim down. The effect would be so small as to be pretty pretty negligible, I, I would say, comparatively speaking. Not not that the effect itself is going to be substantially different necessarily, but just that it, it's such a such a small effect in general. You probably don't have to dig that deep into the toolbox for general weight loss. Um, now, the one thing I would caution against with uh, with refeeds is. Some people take the approach that you'll see in some research papers where they they actually aggressively overfeed for a few days and they actually do get a pretty measurable increase in energy expenditure and a pretty measurable increase in leptin. Uh, but the problem is that is very much an instance of taking, you know, two steps forward and like three steps back um, because what's happening is you're like, oh, cool, I've increased my metabolic rate by X, but, you know, you've increased caloric intake by such a dramatically higher magnitude that it's still a net negative effect. Uh, you, you've still taken in far more well, calories. It's, it's, it's a net negative effect for fat loss and a net positive a net, effect for, yeah. for energy status. Exactly. Yeah. A yeah. net positive in terms of energy balance, which in terms of achieving your goal yeah. is negative. Um, but yeah. The uh, so so you you certainly don't want to try to throw the hail mary and say well I'm going to overeat by 900 calories over the next few days and maybe hopefully my metabolic rate increases by 300 that that's a bad transaction don't make it um so now the question is if if we're doing these more conservative approaches that actually do make some sense how long do you have to do it I I'm of the opinion that. Two days would essentially be the bare minimum. Three would probably be better. When you look at the the most impressive results in terms of the biggest magnitude of effect, it, it really seems to be the diet break studies that are doing more of like a week or two. So the, the Matador study did the two weeks of dieting, two weeks of maintenance, and had, had pretty impressive effects uh, over the course of that study. But the drawback is pretty obvious. Like, what used to be a 32-week diet is now a 64-week diet. You know, when, when you extrapolate that over a full weight loss phase, it, it, it's a very meaningful increase in the time spent not dieting. I would say the most um, palatable... Um, what's the word I'm thinking of? The most palatable compromise that I think you could reach, in my opinion, for now, until we see more research come out on this, 
I think like a three week diet with a one week break is probably a very nice spot to be in where, you know, you're still spending the majority of your time dieting, but that one week at maintenance is probably more than enough time to do something pretty meaningful in terms of uh, affecting leptin and its downstream physiological effects. So if, if you're trying to do this refeed or diet break strategy to make a meaningful effect on some of the leptin-based metabolic adaptations, I'd say I'd, I, I'm thinking three weeks dieting, one week at maintenance is a pretty nice compromise. If you're only going for like glycogen replenishment or just having a day where you get to eat a little bit more, sure, one day, two days will we'll, we'll help you do that. What do you think of the setup they used in, uh, oh, fuck, what was that lead author's name? The the Davuti calorie shifting diet study? Oh. Um, so if memory serves, what they did in that study is one group was at like a 30% deficit per day, um, like every day. And the other group was, I believe, at a 40% deficit for 11 days straight and then at maintenance for three days. So basically... Every two weeks, they got like they a, a three day, yeah. three day at maintenance, not not in a, a surplus. Um, if memory serves in that study, they saw similar weight loss, maybe slightly greater body fat loss for the calorie shifting group, um, and slightly better maintenance of of metabolic rate as well. Yeah, I know I've seen that one. I'm pretty sure I included that in the metabolic adaptation article on the site. Um, I, I do think that the three day approach every other week might even be better than two days every week. I, I think there is something to be said of having a decent, uh, consecutive stretch of time of being at maintenance. And I, I do think that three days is probably meaningfully better than than two it's it's a bit of a hunch there's some evidence there but the the problem with comparing like bill study and that study apples to apples is that you have to consider all the other differences in the study protocol which are quite numerous so i, I i'm leaning toward if if you're looking at shorter diet breaks that that would still be kind of in refeed territory you'd want to do at least two or three days um, whether that's weekly or every every other week really depends on how often you can get away with it. Um, but if you if you have plenty of time on the front end and you want to do this thing right and give yourself plenty of wiggle room, then I would lean more toward the three weeks on, one week at maintenance approach. All right. Final question. Final question. Here we go. Daily double. And daily double. Ashley asks, this question's for Greg. Um I would like to hear about your journey from being the question asker to the question answerer. So not just how your fitness came along, but how you got your name out and became a person that people follow uh, in the fitness industry. Yeah, so um, th this, is, this is a general story I've told multiple times before on other people's podcasts, so I, I guess it's uh, I guess it's good to to get it out here on some, some media that I own as well. Um, so the, the general trajectory I took is, um, I didn't really know that I wanted to get into the fitness industry. Um, like I, I went to college as a history major. Um, but I was super into powerlifting 
And when I got to the senior seminar class for history, I realized like, I don't actually want any of the jobs that I could get with this degree. <laughs> um, and so I just switched to exercise science because um, I knew that that's something that I would find interesting. And I didn't know that there were really things you could do with exercise science other than like, I don't know, maybe be an overqualified personal trainer or like be a strength coach. But, you know, I liked lifting. Um, I'd been like kind of helping other people with their training and programming for a while at that point. Uh, so I was like, eh, fuck it. Let's do this thing. And then um, since I was like so obsessed with powerlifting, I used to like talk my then girlfriend's now wife's ear off about lifting all the time. And so she was like, Greg, why don't you start a blog to try to find other weirdos who are as obsessed with this as you are? It was, um, that was code for please stop talking to me. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, when I was, I, I believe a sophomore in college, that's when I started gregknuckles.com, which then became string theory, which is now stronger by science. Um, and yeah, just kind of sharing my training, sharing some of my thoughts about training. Um, and that kind of just organically grew an audience from there. Um, and then after graduation, I had a job lined up at a gym back in North Carolina and she got an internship out in California. Um, and it was the, so her background's in journalism and it was the Dow Jones news fund internship, which like if there's any journalism people listening to this, uh, you'll know that it's like quite a prestigious journalism internship. So, you know, that was a big opportunity. We kind of wanted to get out and see more of the country anyways. So we headed out to California um, and I was kind of in a position where she was only guaranteed 10 weeks, I believe. So I couldn't really just roll up to a gym and say like, Hey, you should hire me. PS. I may be gone two months from now. Um, so I got a job as the content manager for juggernaut fitness systems or ju juggernaut training systems. Um, and that was, that was great. But also like, so Chad absolutely paid me a fair amount for the work that I was doing for him. Um, and I don't want to make it sound like he wasn't because it wasn't a tremendous amount of work, but also California is incredibly expensive. Um, and <laughs> Lindsay wasn't getting paid like a ton for her, her journalism internship. So at that point I was like, well, maybe I should try to monetize the site a little more just so uh, so finances aren't as tight month to month. Um, and, and I'd been doing a little online coaching up to this point, but that's when um, I linked up with Omar and put out the uh, Art and Science of Lifting eBooks. And then they did well. And that's when I realized like, oh, I can actually make a business out of this and and kind of do like the online lifting content business type deal. Um, and then, I mean, really past that, the rest is history. So, so that's like the necessary like biographical information. Um, but in terms of, you know, how I went from someone who tried to start a business in the fitness industry to someone who has done like pretty well for myself in the fitness industry... I think that um, I, I think that there's basically two subcategories there. So one, 
Uh, I've, I've worked really hard for it and I don't want to make it sound like I haven't. Um, but I also got incredibly lucky along the way. And I, I, I can verify by the way, as a, an objective <laughs> observer, I mean, you, you work really hard. You sleep is a new thing for you. Like for most of the time I've known you, you worked instead of sleeping most nights, which is a very unique thing. So it, it definitely should not be discounted. Yeah, but I I also think that um, a lot of people in a position similar to mine uh, downplay the the luck that they've had along the way and just the amount of good fortune that's come their way. Because, I mean, the thing is, there's a ton of very competent, very bright, very hardworking people um, who don't who don't make it to the place that I have. Um, And so, like. A few things I had going for me that absolutely helped out is one, um, I'm just like naturally gifted for picking up heavy things. Uh, I've absolutely trained hard to get good at powerlifting, but you know, I'm, I picked good parents for it. Like most people could train just as hard as I have and not wind up as strong as I did. And I would be lying to myself if I didn't recognize that that played a non-negligible role in at least at first a lot of people taking me more seriously than they probably would someone else um i mean yeah you're you're not gonna deadlift 700 with absolute trash genetics or even average genetics right and and if you do deadlift 700 and you think you have trash genetics you're you're wrong absolutely (laughs) kidding yourself yeah completely fooling yourself Um, another thing I had going for me is I was fortunate in that I was able to build an audience before having to make a profit on it. Um, I think that's one of the things that stymies a lot of people's businesses right out of the gate. Cause you know, you're an adult, you need to keep a roof over your head. You need to keep food on your table and you have a reasonably small audience and to make things work out logistically, a reasonably large percentage of that audience needs to pay for your coaching or buy your products. And so you kind of have to push things harder and then people may be a little more distrustful because they're like, well, this person puts out good information, but I really feel like they're trying to sell to me all the time. Uh, and so I was really lucky in that um, I went to college on a full scholarship with a stipend. And so like, I didn't need to worry about money through college. And when I started the blog, I had no intention of it being a business. And so I had like three, like three, almost four years of runway where it was just something I did for fun and I could put information out there and it just kind of organically grew an audience and I could build a lot of trust with those people because I wasn't having to sell to them all the time because like it, it wasn't something I planned on becoming a business. And so I, I wasn't monetizing it. And so people didn't feel like I was, you know, maybe trying to take advantage of them to reach my hand in their wallet. So that was that was definitely something lucky I had going for me, which I wouldn't have done had I not annoyed my wife as much. Um, and just for context, that that scholarship with the stipend, did that have anything to do with the uh, you had like a perfect SAT at like 14, right? Well, so that was the National Merit Scholarship, which is based on PSAT scores. Okay. So I did not have a perfect PSAT. Oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Um, I had an 800 math and a 780 reading. So let, let it what, slip for that one. 
what's the cutoff for illiterate 770 <laughs> well you you just you just alienated uh all of that <laughs> statistically 97 percent of our listeners um but yeah so i, I mean so, uh, i mean th- that's another pretty damn close to perfect yeah that's another thing as well like i wasn't the i wasn't the guy that studied for standardized tests like i didn't earn that either like that was also incredibly lucky um Another thing I had going for me is that um, when I was 14 and was really into basketball, I wanted to be able to dunk. And I could with like one hand, but I have pretty small hands, so that was pretty dicey. So I wanted to be able to get another like four inches on my vertical so I could like convincingly throw down with two hands. And I was lucky that the strength coach I hired happened to be Travis Mash who was, at the time, one of the best multiply powerlifters in the world and was just randomly training people at a little gym in Moxville, North Carolina. And so then when I got knocked out of real sports due to accumulated injuries and concussion issues, um, you know, he was there to say, like, hey, this seems like it sucks now, but you're actually a lot better at lifting weights than you were at real sports, so why don't you try powerlifting? So, like... Without that, I never would have found my way into this world in the first place, in all likelihood. Um, And then I could intern at his gym through college, and he was the one who hooked me up with Chad Wesley Smith to get me that job at Juggernaut, Um, which, like, I don't think I really earned that job. I think Chad just kind of trusted Travis, and Travis said, this kid is smart, he can do the work, and Chad was like, cool, like, I'll give him a shot. Um, so that was also something that, that was incredibly fortunate getting that job at Juggernaut got like my name in front of a lot of people cause they already had a big audience. So that was also really, really helpful and not something that I necessarily earned. Um, and so like, yeah, I've, I started with a lot of advantages that a lot of other people don't have, um, and I, I think that, um, like I started with, I think a lot of people in my position acknowledge the work that they did, but they don't acknowledge the advantages they had. And not everyone who's successful did it with a lot of advantages. Like, I think some people just, I don't know, maybe do truly earn it all themselves, but a lot of us don't. Um, but then the other thing is like, as Eric alluded to, I am kind of a workaholic. Um, like if, uh, if it's a question between like getting a little more work done or like sleeping, I pretty much always choose work. Um, I just, I love it. And, and, and it's easy for me cause I really love what I do. And so like, it's oftentimes what I would want to spend my time doing. So it's not like, it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like a chore. But I do end up putting in really long hours pretty much every day. Um, So, like, I get more done than most people do because I work more hours than most people do. Um, And then I think, like, I think one of the things that helped me specifically as well is I didn't listen to people's advice when I started treating this like a business. So one of the things that you'll learn when when you start a content business is like, 
you know, you need to put out content all the time. You need to stay top of mind. Like you need to be showing up in people's timelines all the time and, you know, new content on your site that you can email people about multiple times per week. And like, I just didn't do that because I, I like followed a lot of people in the fitness industry that took that approach and it just pissed me off. And (laughs) most of the time when I would click on something on their site, it would be like, well, cool. Like this is the same regurgitated bullshit that I've heard you personally say four times already. And I've heard (laughs) other people in the fitness industry say a thousand times already. Um, so I think just like, like, so it's just a a frequent, frequent reminder that they hadn't done anything new lately. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't think my content is like, like crazy mind blowing shit, but I at least try to make an effort to put out things that are unique or original in some way, shape or form. Either that's addressing a topic that either people haven't touched on or not many people have touched on or taking a topic that people kind of know about, but going way more in depth than anyone else would have the patience to Um, just trying to make sure that like everything I put out like matters and people aren't going to, to walk away from it thinking like, well, shit, I just wasted my time. Um, (laughs) And so both the the amount of work I do and the the focus on making sure everything is like high value, um, I think those were those were two of the most important things that were under my control that I did. Um, and then another thing where uh, where I got very lucky is um, my wife Lindsay, who, like I said, her background's in journalism. Um, once journalism didn't really work out for her, like she came on and she's been managing the design and marketing and like business side of the business since 2015, I believe, early 2015. Um, and it turns out that she's really good at what she does. And um, so, yeah, like that. She is the, the, the emperor of the Knuckles publishing empire. I yeah. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. So, I mean... Like, that's also helped tremendously. I I think one of the things a lot of folks don't realize is, you know, if you want to to go from being, like, the question asker to the question answerer, um, when people stumble upon your digital domain, a lot of times they make a snap judgment, whether they mean to or not, where they kind of look around and say, like, does this seem like a professional outfit or not? And so, you know, that includes like the design of the website. Is it clean? Did they make decent font choices? If there's graphics or images, do they look clean and professional? When I read this, does it, you know, does it read like something I may read from a professional venue or are there typos every four sentences? Um, And her background's in copy editing. So that helps a lot with the typos because I make a shit ton of typos. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, like, People, when they land on Stronger by Science, are more likely to, you know, within the first two seconds of evaluating the site, think like, oh, the people behind this seem legit and seem like they know what they're doing versus a lot of other like small like fitness content operations out there. So, yeah, I mean, uh, to bring this full circle, mixture of luck and hard work, um, I don't think I would be... I, I think... Just purely based on hard work, I could have, you know, been able to keep a roof over my head. But I think that 
getting to where I am now, like absolutely the the good fortune and luck and lucky breaks I got along the way played a big role in that. And I just want want to make sure that that's clear and that um, that I don't downplay that. All right. Well, we're approaching the 90 minute mark, so that's probably about time to wrap it up for this episode. Um, as always, thank you for listening. If you have questions, uh, in the episode description, we'll have the links where you can ask us whatever questions on your mind and any federal policies you'd like to see, uh, completely overhauled. Let us know those as well. Um, we're signing off and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the stronger by science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.